And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst. We're a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some special topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, Facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're also on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. On Apple Podcasts, you can find us by searching for The Thirst. We're on Spotify as well and Podbean. You can search for us there by looking for The Thirst. Running theme here, obviously, as usual. And our email address, if you want to get in touch, is thethirstpod at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can also have a look at our blog as well where we share links and other things mentioned in the episode and the url for that is thethirstpod.wordpress.com this is episode 44 i did have a few things for this unlike normal did you yeah do you have anything i've got a couple of things the main one being plus 44 that horrible band with travis barker and mark hoppus i think you'll find they were a very good post blink range to you band were they though yes yes they were well i'm gonna say they're a horrible band but yes that was pretty much it there was some other stuff 44 trivia wise that I wasn't that interested in so I've, I've mainly stuck with birthdays you mean you weren't interested in the fact that Barack Obama was the 44th president of the United States in all honesty no sorry that's very unpatriotic of me like to a country you don't live in yes I don't actually live there so um did you also not want to reference the Alexis on Fire song 44 Colour Love Black oh my god I forgot about that song yeah oh okay yeah Alexis on Fire great song taking that over plus 44 band with Mark and Tom no Mark and Travis any day completely fine who who have you got for people who are 44 great list banging list Uh, firstly I put Alex Skarsgård who we've already talked about because he was 43 the last time we recorded recorded and this is just an excuse to talk about him again it was his birthday wasn't it yeah august the something uh happy birthday alex Skarsgård. love you also got reese witherspoon benedict cumberbatch this basically is a list of people that i either thought were older or thought were younger so reese witherspoon probably older not that much older benedict cumberbatch it's probably the same age. kate winslet in my head is older uh rick ross just random i also had rick ross on my list as well travis barker links back it all comes full circle killian murphy mark ronson oh mark ronson's 44 i love love to see it jar rule king of Firefest, freddie prince jr Melissa Joan Hart. No thanks, Republican, not a fan. Is she? I didn't know that. For God's sake, Sabrina. Come on, Sabrina. Oh, wow. Um, I had some other people. Go on. Well, I had say other people. I had three others. I had DJ Khaled. Yes, brilliant. DJ Khaled. Uh, your favourite Colin Farrell. Is Colin Farrell 44? See, in my head, he's older as well. I think it's because like him and Kate Winslet have been acting for such a long time. They've been in our consciousness like forever since we were kids. So Since Ballycus Angel. Yes. Yes. God, that seminal piece of art, Ballycus Angel. Look it up if you haven't seen it. I, I wonder if it's on streaming. Do you reckon it's on streaming? Why are we going to get into that now? Yeah, imagine if we get really into Ballycus Angel. I'm not watching that on top of uh, Minder and the Professionals and Lovejoy. I've got I've got too much UK TV drama in my life already, so. Was Colin Farrell the Paul Mescal of his time i reckon so i was i was, I was obsessed with him when he was in balicus angel a bit dirtier seedier definitely <laughs> and the other person i had was uh, sterling k brown as well oh lovely just a great an array of people brilliant happy birthday to you all maybe 
So under some news now, uh, we thought we'd start with the most important and very exciting thing that happened to us today. So we're recording this on Wednesday the 9th of September and at approximately 5pm today, the trailer for the forthcoming film that we are very much looking forward to appeared online. It is June. 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 So the trailer, uh, it was teased a couple of weeks ago with some pictures. I think, did we talk about this in the last episode? I feel like we did. I think maybe we did. We've definitely talked about it a few times on this podcast because obviously it's the thing that's supposed to save 2020 in its entirety. So no pressure. No pressure, God willing. Uh, so many of our faves involved, the most important of which being Timothy Chalamet and Oscar Isaac and Denise New, I would say as well. Yeah, I would. So the trailer, which is three minutes long, this feels excessively long for that a trailer. That is a right belter for a trailer, isn't it? The thing is, I so rarely watch trailers anymore because I often find they spoil th- too much for me. So I love a trailer. Yeah, I love them. But then I also find that sometimes things are spoiled. So I try to avoid them. But this one, I got involved. Three minutes. It's basically a movie in itself. Basically, a little movie of itself. So we FaceTimed earlier. I waited patiently till you were free so we could watch it together. That was very good of you. I was on a phone call. <laughs> it's fine. Why? It's just, it's not the same if I've seen something and then I'm getting excited about it on the internet and then you're just like, I'm in a meeting, I can't do it. Always in a meeting, phone calls, meetings, Zoom just crops up at the wrong time, man, every time. Uh, So what are your thoughts, feelings, emotions regarding the trailer for June, which is supposed to come out in December? Supposed to dot 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 yeah quite aside from all of that and whether this could even take place how it will take place who's gonna go etc etc yeah i fully lost my mind over this trailer really after a shitty week i feel like my heart is finally singing for something it's so lovely it was a nice day wasn't it a nice thing to receive today as you said proper belter three minutes long didn't entirely hit the sort of generic movie trailer formula beat by beat. Do you remember that tweet that we shared once, which was like the formula for a trailer on a movie? And it just goes through all the different things that happened. So it wasn't beat for beat that. It was a bit, obviously. But, you know, there, there wasn't any big wah noises everywhere. No, no honking sounds. No honking, no honks. Uh, so it was a little bit different. We are truly blessed that we were instantly graced with a Timothy Zendaya snog, which apparently I've been waiting for my whole life and didn't realise. I didn't know I was so invested in it already, but there you go. We have discussed before how if Timothy could date anyone, it would have to be Sasha, who's just blatantly too cool for him. So it would probably have to be Zendaya and then I would be happy. So seeing them together in this film and we've seen some really lovely exchanges from them on Twitter recently as well. It's been an absolute joy. I do feel like ending 2020 with so much Timmy screen time is truly is the greatest part of gift of the year. Fingers crossed we get it. Classic broody in this film, I feel. And top ranking hair, absolute top ranking hair. His hair. hair. Has knocked Kyle from Ladybird off the top spot for best hair, I would say, of his career so far. They, it is so perfectly curled, I could barely, could barely handle it. And we've covered this ground before. The fucking cast, man. Like, so good. To have Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson as your parents it's a bit much it's so much beardy oscar i can't that properly ruined my afternoon it was it was so nice to see so many familiar lovely talented faces cinematography so greg fraser's cinematography like the scale of this film is i mean as expected it is huge but it is almost unfathomable because it is so big yeah it's just the the desert scapes and and the sheer scale of everything is just mad it's just vast it looks huge doesn't it it's like proper world building in a way that just absolutely blows my mind the worm at the end (laughs) 
absolutely terrifying. God, the idea of being in a desert and something just coming up out of the ground like that. No thanks. Absolute vomit, absolute vomit. I feel like we're going to spend quite a lot of time it's not called dust is it what's it called spice spice that's it i do feel like there's going to be like tons of spice jokes coming out in december just everyone being a bit spicy oh spicy a bit spicy the other the only other thing i'd say is you i think you can tell from the trailer that it's going to be a pg-13 like there's the bits with jason momoa fighting and it's almost like they've replaced the blood with kind of red and blue effects so it's kind of like okay this is definitely going to be like family adjacent family friendly yeah i feel like the timing of it with it coming out at the end of the year in that classic kind of like christmas and new year's slot it's definitely being lined up for being the thing that you could go and see with your family if you're able to i don't know i don't get the sense that june as a book is very like family friendly and that it's quite complex so i don't know do kids care about mining spice not sure the thing i find interesting on that front is that i don't think that apart from like people under the age of 20 being extremely pro Timmy and, and Zendaya I can't imagine that they care about any other element of this no, film no I don't either I can't see that happening I'm not sure how much of an appeal there will be so I think it'll be really interesting to see how this is received obviously there's quite a lot of riding on this film and it's a really complex subject on that the only other thing I will say is that from this trailer and from the many plot summaries I have read online, I'm still not sure I understand the concept of this film. <laughs> so we had a discussion previously, I think, about the fact that you were going to read the book and I was considering getting the audio book, but it was yeah. like 35 hours plus long and I was like, I don't think I have the time. Part of me feels like it's going to be a bit like reading a really dense non-fiction book about just like the history of Spice or something. I think the thing is, I'm not going to be that much of a purist about the fact that like, I think you could go and see this without having read the book and then just read about it on Wikipedia. They're going to have to add a Hollywood edge to this book, aren't they? And it's a book that seems like it's not very Hollywood in that it has historically and famously been very hard to adapt so it's quite the undertaking for Denis Villeneuve. It's an epic isn't it especially like after Blade Runner 2049 which mm -hmm. I really enjoyed. Yeah I really enjoyed it I mean I haven't rushed back to rewatch it I have to say. It was good wasn't it but you, you want this film to be better than that like that's good but that's not good enough for the scale of this film. No it definitely wasn't received as like 100% positively as I think that everyone... Anti I don't think it was the career high was it no but it's interesting that he's like continuing down this kind of sci-fi track actually really loves it you know his first films definitely weren't of that kind but it's sort of maybe that's something that he's been particularly interested in but hasn't been able to get the opportunity to do but Blade Runner was the sort of turning point perhaps and then mm -hmm. to tackle June but mm -hmm. the trailer itself was just a delight I did like a bullet pointed list of everything that I enjoyed from it most of which you've covered but I'll read anyway for comedy value <laughs> go um, on I'd written spicy spicy spice spice spicy spice spice famously I'm not very good with spice or heat so we'll see what I do with this Oscar Isaac hot dad yeah really leaning into that aesthetic which I can 100% get behind. Salt and pepper beard. Right. Timmy's bone structure saving 2020. And freckles. I liked the freckles. Yeah. Zendaya, a goddess. I guess I do fancy Josh Brolin a lot. That'll be interesting to revisit after watching this film, won't it? <laughs> right. I've always been on the fence, but there we go. Pushing me fully. Confirmed. Confirmed. Um, and then I've also just written, is everyone in this movie hot? Yes. And then finally, worms. I can't talk about June without worms. Yes. So we encourage you to actively seek out the trailer if you can 
it will be everywhere over the internet, especially on our Twitter feed because you went a bit overboard. I mean, truly on brand for us. Rude not to. Absolutely rude not to. Look forward to seeing it. Yes. Onto something that would have felt remiss of us not to acknowledge. On Saturday the 29th of August, when we woke up in the morning over in England, it was announced that the actor Chadwick Boseman um, had surprisingly died of cancer. Chadwick died at his home in LA with his wife and his family by his side, and his publicist confirmed this late on the Friday, I think. Boseman was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer in 2016, and he battled for years as it progressed to stage four and it was something that was only known by a very small circle of his family and friends and of course his publicists so there were so many people that he worked with and spent time with that didn't even know that he was going through this for so many years in the family statement that was released they said a true fighter chadwick persevered through it all and brought you many of the films you've come to love so much from Marshall to The Five Bloods, August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and several more, all were filmed during and between countless surgeries and chemotherapy. It was the honour of his career to bring King T'Challa to life in Black Panther. So Bozeman's agent said that Bozeman chose to keep his cancelled battle private, partly due to the lessons learned from his mother. His mother, Carolyn, always taught him not to have people fuss over him. He also felt in this business that people trip out about things and he was a very, very private person. So as mentioned, his filmography included playing black icons like Jackie Robinson in 42 and James Brown in Get On Up before finding international fame as Black Panther for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He most recently starred in 21 Bridges, which is his first producing job as well, The Five Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which finished shooting last summer. Fans were quick to realise that this meant that Boseman was quietly struggling with his diagnosis and the treatment throughout of these major roles, including Black Panther and Avengers. And his agent had said that he was experiencing hardcore pain during the filming of Ma Raimi. Tributes have flooded in, praising his talent, his strength and his kindness. He was a role model for so many, especially an entire generation of young black people. So yeah, I think we just wanted to acknowledge this really, didn't we? It's, I mean, it was an absolute shocker. It was really overwhelming to read because he's just someone whose career it feels like was just going from strength to strength. I felt like he was just at the start of his career as well. Like He's had so many big roles and he's so well acclaimed, but still he's only... I mean, with Black Panther, it's only, you know, been in the past few years. So he's only recently hit the kind of the international global Hollywood stage. And it just felt like I just assumed we were going to have like decades of him to come. With every film, he seemed to be going from strength to strength in terms of success and acclaim. I mean, I really enjoyed The Five Bloods, uh, which came mm. out in June, I think, and he was mm-hmm. brilliant in that. And he's someone that had worked quite a lot in theatre, did a lot mm. of playwriting in New York as well before he decided to kind of pursue films and, you know, more widely by moving to LA. So it's interesting to think that actually in the grand scheme of things, most of his sort of success came quite late in his life. Mm. I think we discussed that in the last episode didn't we because he was on our our celebrities that are 43 list and we just couldn't believe he was 43 i thought he was younger i thought he was much younger than that and it's interesting to sort of see the trajectory of his career and it was mm. you know it was really overwhelming to sort of see so many of the tributes that were shared by fellow mcu castmates and people from the industry more broadly because obviously he was so well loved and revered by those that worked with him and i think there was this sort of really interesting like you said the fact that he hadn't ever 
ever publicly felt that he wanted to talk about his diagnosis he wanted to focus on his work and deal with his illness secondly and most of the people that had spoken out that had worked alongside him had said they had absolutely no idea no Mm. reason to think that anything was up there was no indication that actually he was unwell or going through surgeries or having treatment like that and it's just a lot it's a lot and it's a it's a real real shame that we won't get to see where his career goes and it'll be interesting to see the film that will be coming out now posthumously being his final piece of work and it's just such a legacy like he said for a whole generation particularly with Black Panther with young black people being able to finally have a superhero of their own to sort of look up to and Mm. I remember when Black Panther came out you know seeing the reaction from people across the globe to finally being able to see black superhero and like African culture represented on screen in such a visceral way was just really overwhelming and lovely to see so you know there's such a legacy there for him it has been a really bittersweet opportunity to sort of remember and reflect on the impact of so many of his roles and as you say especially Black Panther I remember talking to my colleague who tweeted out that you know for his son as you say like seeing a black superhero and you know just being totally in love and obsessed with Black Panther like that was T'Challa was his role model so I don't know and there's been so many lovely lovely amazing videos and interviews that have come out in recent days to kind of commemorate him and people reflecting on some amazing times that they had together and it's just it was just horrific isn't it it's such a shame as you say but like what an amazing legacy to have already you know at 44 he achieved so much in so little a time and also you know as you say went through so surgery and a lot of medical pain during some really physical roles which is absolutely mind-boggling that anyone could get through that with so much grace and so much strength so I'm sure a lot of people can't quite face watching many of Chadwick Boseman's films maybe straight away but hopefully over the coming sort of weeks and months we can all start to revisit them and sort of remember his his immense talent. And finally, another trailer that was released this week. Got a wee trailer sandwich today. A trailer sandwich. Uh, So the trailer for Rebecca, Netflix's Rebecca, made its way online on Tuesday. If, like me, you had forgotten that it was coming around (laughs) and that it was directed by Ben Wheatley, of all people. Absolutely rando. I completely spaced on the fact that it was a Ben Wheatley film. So it's his adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which has been adapted a few times beforehand. But this version will be released on Netflix on October the 20th. 21st. We'll obviously be reviewing it when it does make its way online. Uh, it stars Army Hammer, Lily James, Christian Stott Thomas, amongst others. What was your immediate thought upon seeing this? Because I feel like you have slightly more of an attachment slash interest in Rebecca than I do. So I wonder if our reactions are slightly <laughs> different. I mean, I'm like a pretty big, I'd say pretty big Rebecca fan. Like read the book a couple of times. I remember seeing uh, it on stage at one point. I saw a stage adaptation of it that was really, really good. So I remember discussing this with you briefly ages ago when it was first announced and being like, it is so intriguing that Ben Wheatley is the one to, you know, to be behind this, like director of Kill List and A Field in England and Free Fire. Okay, he's he's covering Rebecca. It just seems, I don't know. I mean, I guess in a way it's a, it's a gothic romance. And I think he's talked about the fact that he sees it as kind of a, a ghost story smuggled into a romance story, like a Russian yeah. doll, which I really like the idea of. So it's, it's very much a blend of genres, I guess. So I can see how it would appeal to him in that way. But on the surface of things, it seems like quite a strange 
choice. But then it was interesting, something you said to me the other day about how you thought maybe he had a trick up his sleeve. Yeah, so I think my initial reaction to seeing this was that it just felt really bright. It's very vivid, isn't it? It's very, very vivid. And it just seemed really like not what I would have expected from Ben Wheatley, which then did leave me to believe. And maybe this is me wanting to give him the benefit of a doubt because it's definitely not what I expected from him. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe he has sort of been purposeful in making the trailer look one way, but the film itself will be another. I'm not entirely sure that is the case, but that's what I sort of want to believe. (sighs) It's so intriguing. Yeah, and what we see in the trailer, I mean, we see quite a bit of kind of Army Hammer and Lily James's characters meeting together in the sunshine in somewhere beautiful. And you don't see as much of Mandalay and... Mandalay is a very gothic place. It's dark. It's kind of in that Bronte, Jane Eyre-esque. Yeah. You know, so it's got to get a bit dark, surely. Like, surely he can't be, it can't be Ben Wheatley going mainstream and getting, like, weirdly Agatha Christie twee on us. It would be... That's exactly what I took from it, is it seemed really like Agatha Christie, BBC, ITV, crime, drama. I mean, I saw a brilliant tweet in the reactions to the trailer being online. It was Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. They tweeted, Ben Wheatley usually makes films where someone gets beaten to death with a severed limb, but his Rebecca trailer looks like an Instagram influencer tried to make a Luca Guadagnino movie. And I was like, that exactly is what it feels like. Because it has like, and I think this is the curse of Army Hammer, is that it's really hard to not automatically just think of Oliver. Oliver, Oliver. But it does have a Luca vibe. It reminded me a little bit of elements of a bigger splash. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just in its sort of like out Dawsy, like shiny, you know, bright colours aesthetic. I mean, we could be hopeful. Maybe it's a deliberate play on that a little bit. One would hope. One would hope. I mean, we've talked about Army Hammer a million times. Army, army, army. (laughs) I mean, where do you even begin with Army Hammer? Because we've spent a lot of time discussing him. We've probably purposefully shied away from gossiping about him recently because he's got a lot going on in his private life. But he's a really strange actor, isn't he? Because he's... Is he good? Is he not good? I don't know. I mean, he's obviously great in Call Me By Your Name, but it's, again, quite hard to judge a film when Army Hammer is the lead. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think one thing that I've sort of found is that I feel like he he is like a brilliant Oliver. Oh, he's perfect Oliver and obviously that's just the power of seeing a film and being obsessed with the film and being like no perfect casting but he is so brilliant as Oliver but I think if you actually look at his and we're probably going to get absolutely dragged for this if if you look at his filmography mm-hmm. it's not like it's like success success amazing role amazing role I really liked him in Free Fire I thought he was great in Free Fire yeah he's so so good in that I really liked him in The Man from Uncle as well. Sorry to Bother You was pretty, he was pretty good yeah. in that. It's a very particular type of role. Yeah, but I just don't know if he's Maxim de Winter. And I think that... The accent is sounding a bit hokey, I'll be honest. The accent, not not into it. It's such a choice. I think the thing I'd seen quite a lot as well online um, as a reaction to the trailer was people discussing just how overtly like sexual it felt. Yeah. Just unbearably horny. And the music used in the, in the trailer 
trailer is so like Fifty Shades of Grey-esque. Yeah. And what's so brilliant about Rebecca is that so much about it is like withholding mm-hmm. and stark and it's not this overt sexual no. No, no, book no, 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 or no. film or anything like that. So it's really interesting that they've turned it into this sort of like Instagrammy, horny man meets woman and oh has to go back to his new house kind of thing. So I'm I was I had been really looking forward to it. I know I know when we did talk about it when it was announced, we'd sort of said like, oh yeah, cool, can get on board. I'm just now more apprehensive about it than I probably was. Yeah, and sort of generally speaking, I do like Army, obviously, and I do like Lily James, but again, yes. I'm not hundred percent on the car. I need to be persuaded about this casting. I think no. Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers works really well. She's the one thing I think about it that really stands out for me is I think right. that she will be a good Mrs. Danvers, but I don't I just don't buy Lily really. And I love Lily, like I will wax lyrical about my love for her, but yeah, she's just too obviously beautiful and wonderful and She's a bit sweet, isn't she? And again, the whole point is that everyone's supposed to be slightly baffled as to why this is Maxim de Winter's new wife. Right. I don't know. It's so strange. I feel like it's either going to be really good or it's going to be a complete flop. Obviously, hoping for the former. The set pieces actually look amazing. So it does look lovely, doesn't it? I love it when, you know, this is the power of the book as well. I love it when, like, a house becomes a character in itself. Yes. Especially in a ghost story of sorts. So I hope we get a lot of that in this film as well but I think we're definitely going to be apprehensive going into this but at least we don't have too much of a wait next month. No this is the benefit with things coming out on Netflix I suppose and also there not being too much of a long wait in between things like we had the Devil All The Time trailer last time we spoke uh, and then that comes out next week mm-hmm. on Netflix and so the time frame between that trailer and it appearing online hasn't been particularly long. We'd have to wait six months for it to land in the cinema yeah. We'll, um, we'll report back when it makes its way online so I, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic. Let's give it a go. Watch this space. So moving on to what we've been enjoying recently, uh, we just mentioned the Netflix and things appearing on Netflix, which is of great benefit at the moment. So the thing we're going to be discussing today is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which was released on Netflix globally on September the 4th, so just last week. It had always been intended to be a Netflix release, though, even pre-corona, so it's not something that's appeared online in the wake of theatre shutdowns or anything like that. It's written and directed by Charlie Cowell, it's his third feature as a director. His previous films that he has directed himself were Anomalisa in 2015 and Synecdoche, New York, which is in 2008. But he's more widely known, I suppose, for writing a number of notable films, including Adaptation, Being John Malkovich, and probably most famously, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I'm thinking of ending things. is based on the 2016 novel of the same name by Canadian writer Ian Reid, and it stars Jesse Plemons, Jesse Buckley, Tony Collette, and David Thuellis. So it's a hard film to describe but the synopsis that I settled upon is full of misgivings a young woman Jessie Buckley travels with her new boyfriend Jake Jessie Plemons to his parents secluded farm upon arriving she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him and herself so this was something that I was really looking forward to I really like Charlie Kaufman's work like probably every single person I know under the age of 35 um, I went through a real eternal sunshine of the spotless mind phase when it came out and again I was like weirdly obsessed with being John Malkovich as well yeah (laughs) which is a really weird film to get obsessed about because it is actually very batshit like most Charlie Kaufman films I feel like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is obviously the most notable of his that he's been involved in and it's also probably the most accessible I would say so yeah so in stark contrast I'm thinking of ending things so I was really looking forward to it I really like Jesse Plemons in particular Mm. Jesse Buckley is someone who 
I've seen in things and I think she's really great but I didn't necessarily have any expectation where she was concerned but adding in Tony Collette David Thrillis um, who was one of the leads in Anomalisa so it's mm. someone who's worked with Charlie Kaufman before I was really excited something that I didn't realise actually until I was doing research for this is that Jesse Plemons Jesse Buckley and David Thrillis had been in Fargo the TV version of Fargo yeah. I've not watched any of it but I thought that was very interesting that the link there was between the three of them so I was pumped for this in advance mm. I remember seeing the trailer thinking like looks very weird I didn't get a chance to read the book ahead of it which I'd really no. wanted to do but just completely spaced I also think that I didn't realise it was coming out in September it seemed to just sneak up on us didn't it it did completely so I think I probably could have made an effort but didn't so I was looking forward to it had you got any expectations of it ahead of it making its way online I think for me I do like Charlie Kaufman I think for many of the reasons that you sort of already outlined the films you've already outlined um, I'm not like a diehard fan and I can sort of take him or leave him to an extent in that he's sort of very I'm saying this slightly ironically but sort of very clever films for very clever people if you get what I mean so some of them I, I do really enjoy I haven't seen all of his work I was really looking forward to this because it had a kind of horror element to it yeah. so it was a bit darker a bit more twisted and that is obviously going to appeal to me quite a lot and as you say the main cast of Jesse Buckley who was great in Beast in particular Jesse Plemons Tony Collette as well I mean she's become quite synonymous with horror as well like that performance in Hereditary was definitely the standout of that film so I would say I was pretty excited when I remembered about a week before it dropped that it was going to happen it gave me something to look forward to and where do you even begin with this film really someone told me that this film had a Razorhead vibes and I can absolutely see it, especially for the first half. So it's that kind of absurd and quite troubling family dinner scene where the new girlfriend meets the boyfriend's parents. God, so, yeah. you know, absolute typical sort of surreal Kaufman and also quite Lynchian in terms of quality, I guess. It's kind of laughable, but also deeply unsettling. And, you know, the car journey, you spend a lot of time in the car with these two characters, more than I expected. And, you know, with the surrounding snow, it's just so oppressive. Has the farmhouse it's a hard film to explain I mean we've talked about it quite a lot actually and I think the two leads the double Jessies are fantastic it's such a strong cast isn't it yeah this sort of couple that have only been dating for a few weeks but there seems to be you know if you're in a car having a car journey with someone that you're quite freshly dating there seems like a real lack of connection between them in some ways they're not sort of connecting on a romantic or an affectionate level they feel quite disconnected from truth and reality from the very beginning there's sort of moments that are very sweet between them but we're also told right from the very start that things are ending evening as they've just begun and I think they both give phenomenally strong performances in this it's funny that you mention Charlie Kaufman films being clever films for clever people mm -hmm. because I think one of the criticisms that is often thrown at his work which I fully understand and mm -hmm. get behind the amount of conversations I've had this week with people after having seen this film my response when they've said like what did you think and mm. I've said like well it's fully what I expected in the sense that it's just reminded me how much I both love and hate Charlie Kaufman films yeah because I always feel like they're like visual puzzles mm -hmm. and I really enjoy that because I like having my brain prodded and it makes for a good revisit doesn't it it's something that you can watch and rewatch over and over again and pick up on these tiny clues these tiny signifiers complete tiny references but I completely understand why people don't 
don't like that. A lot of the criticism I've read about it is that people don't like the fact that they then had to go and read about it, which mm-hmm. I haven't, I'm not bothered by. That's something mm. I enjoy doing. Like, I don't mind doing the homework, but it is sort of, this one in particular, it does feel like the least accessible of his films. And I think that in itself is something that I kind of, I think is fine. But then I also sort of, I saw someone online say it just made them feel stupid. Yeah. And I think that like, I completely get that as well, because actually like, that's not an enjoyable viewing experience for some mm. people. I mean, I didn't mind it, but. I think there's two sides to it really, isn't there? I'm kind of 50-50 in that. I think it makes sense. The fact that this film is very dense in that it's it's very wordy. It's packed full of references, lots of tiny visual moments. Things are shifting, changing. But that, you know, that does make sense in the context of with this film, you feel like you are watching the inside of someone's brain play out in the way that topics bounce around and stories change and you get quotes from, you know, other artists and pop culture and, and it, it plays into these big themes that are being explored in the film, looking at kind of relationships and identity and the passing of time and memory. So I think it does make sense that you would have all of these tiny fractured details. So that kind of worked for me in this film because it it made sense to me, if you get what I mean. No, I do. But at the same time, it is exhausting. Yeah, it definitely is. It's unrelenting in that sense. And I think that like the references to other elements of pop culture and the way that our investment in these things can often affect our ability to perceive the world around us is like a recurring trope in Charlie Kaufman's work. And in particular, like all of his films, if you look back at them, read the synopsis, read the plot lines of them. They're all about interiority. They're all about sort of what it's like to be contained in your brain, in a situation, in a place. They're sort of purposefully abstract with that in the way they play around with being surreal and sort of slightly subversive Mm. and, you know, messing around with the reality, you know, what's real, what isn't. There's this like riddling sense of anxiety around that as well, which so often comes up. Yeah. And again, you know, you mentioned the the aging the memory the time the loneliness again those are just like such Charlie Kaufman things that he so often play around with and like he's a very interesting screenwriter and director to me in that he's so visible in his work Mm. in a way that like other directors and writers are but it's just the way that he writes himself in so Mm -hmm. so many of his films the leads particularly the male characters end up intentionally or unintentionally there's a lot of debate there acting as surrogates for him like Okay, yeah, yeah. He's such a puppet master. Like, there's in adaptation, Nicolas Cage essentially plays a Charlie Kaufman character as he's trying to adapt this unadaptable book. Mm. You know, it's just this really interesting idea that he has this overwhelming presence in his work. And in the same way that I think that with David Lynch, for example, there's the term like Lynchian. That's mm-hmm. just a thing that is known now mm. synonymously. Is this Kaufmanny? Kaufmanian? Kaufmanesque. It's- That's it. It's not Kaufman. Is it? <laughs> Kaufman-esque and I think that like that's really interesting to me when you get filmmakers that like have such an aesthetic tone choice you know like David Lynch you know Mm -hmm. like there are things that you come to like conventions like visual conventions Mm -hmm. plot conventions that you 100% expect from David Lynch based on his like vast output of work so for me watching this it did feel like yep that reminds me of this like that is that you know what I mean and that's fine for me like I really like his work so I expected that but I can kind of understand why it's quite inaccessible in, in, in that way for someone else yeah I would say and I've said this to you after you watched it that I think the first two thirds of this film work so well and 
all of the kind of key moments that really stuck with me and actually made me feel quite anxious were in the car on the way to the farmhouse, the farmhouse in particular, just things like Jake's parents taking forever to come downstairs just made me feel really sick for some reason. So claustrophobic and put you on edge, doesn't it? When Jake's mum first inexplicably her hairstyle changes and she suddenly changes, that threw me completely. The dog that keeps shaking itself and that's kind of the only time you ever see the dog is when it's almost stuck in this like loop of shaking its head, which is really freaky. And the pit stop at the ice cream place on the way home as well. So, so I don't know, it just stuck in my brain and it worked so well. And it did create that feeling of unease, that, un, you know, that unsettling, an- anxious feeling. Everything unraveling as well as the evening's yeah. going on. And as you say, time is folding in and on itself, people moving from old to young. And it's kind of all over the place and it's absolutely fascinating. The final third of this film so the final 40 minutes doesn't work quite as well I would say. Yeah, I agree. It was really interesting for me because you'd said, when I'd asked you about it, so you'd watched it on Friday night Mm -hmm. and I had a feeling that it was going to make me feel slightly uneasy and Mm -hmm. and potentially stress me out a little bit. So I'd left it to when I was feeling a little bit clearer. And when I'd seen you and asked you about it, you'd sort of said to me like, yeah, it will be interesting to sort of see what you think. But the first two thirds of it, really liked and then it drops off so I was sort of like oh okay interesting and then I vividly remember when I was watching it I text you yeah you said you've got 40 minutes left and you said like what point are you at and I said like they've just left the ice cream thing and you were like that's the exact point that I was like it was the exact point I think so interesting it comes apart a bit is after they've left the ice cream parlor and they're in the car again and they go from the car to the school and the rest of the film doesn't quite work for me in the same way and I can't can't quite pinpoint why it might just be the length you know in a lot of ways I think you could shave a good 20 minutes off this film hack it off and it would be so much tighter but it just I felt myself kind of trailing off a bit towards the end I wasn't absorbed as absorbed as I was and I think I said to you that reading the ending of the book synopsis I can completely understand why Kaufman didn't want to stick to the book ending because it is far more definitive um is you know it's more clearly explained and you know that's not going to work for this type of film but yet I think I was maybe anticipating a moment of climax especially for a film that's so tense I needed a release almost it's funny how they sort of ramp up the tension and the increased anxiety and the claustrophobia that Mm. starts with this I think I was reading that I think it's the first car ride so the journey to the farm is 22 minutes long sustained shot and then the second one is 17 minutes so you've got these two lengthy car journeys then you've got the being stuck in the house with all of this playing around with aging and which for me was by far the best bit was in the farmhouse with Jake's parents and it's funny how you mentioned when we were talking about the Rebecca trailer the idea of the house playing a role as much as everyone else and this is sort of the same for this house really is that it becomes this sort of strange place where all this weirdness is happening but the the moment that you get to the the school all this tension has kind of been wrapped up and you're expecting this like huge climactic point so Jake goes into the school and then the 
young woman goes in after him and she's trying to find him and she meets this character and you're sort of expecting something to kind of happen and then it gets like very surreal dreamscapey very odd and then I think like my favorite thing is that like it ends with sort of like a fade out and it's just this weird like oh okay you I think you are just narratively expecting there to be a turning point or at least an explanation or a rationale for everything that's come before and I think even in terms of like other Kaufman films I think at least as vague as and as surreal and mm. narratively unconventional that they all are at least mm. there is like a climactic conclusion you need that release a bit don't you like it needs to hit a you shouldn't have to go online and read what happened no no and I wonder one of the things I had read in an interview with Charlie Kaufman and I think it was in the indie wire kind of explainer mm-hmm. about the ending he talks about whenever he's done adaptations before or work that he hasn't written himself he finds it easier to make the endings as he would want them rather than okay. doing it true to the thing mm. which is fine but it was so interesting to read about the actual conclusion of of the read book in comparison to the ending of the film because actually when you read the ex- explanation of what happens at the end of the book you kind of go like oh actually that would be such a nice turning point yeah right not necessarily wrap things up with a perfect bow but at least give you like a little bit of narrative closure mm, I think it also feels quite strange because for the first two thirds of the film you get these cuts every now and then to a high school janitor which we kind of have no context for but then when we reach this ending in the school the janitor comes to the forefront and then Jake and the woman kind of very quickly fade into the background. Yeah, it's a, such a switch, isn't it? Yeah, you lose kind of Jesse Buckley's character almost altogether. Like there's a whole, quite a vast amount of time where she's just not there and then she kind of appears in the audience at the end. And I think maybe that threw me a bit as well because I'd become so intent and focused on these two characters, these two young people, and then they almost inexplicably faded and it just didn't quite work in the same way for me. No, I agree completely. I think I said to you, I I gave it almost like a four out of five because the first four-fifths of it worked really well and then it it let me down a bit at the end. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the kind of five-star winning thing that I perhaps had been anticipating Mm -hmm. based on my own expectations and then the initial reactions of everyone online. Mm. It's just absolutely not my favourite Charlie Kaufman. I will revisit it at some point, I think, just because I'm really interested to see how it hits a second time. Yeah. To see whether things seem a little bit clearer in terms of the plot and the through lines. It's interesting to me as well. I watched Synecdoche, New York at the start of lockdown. I remember. And I think I said this to you directly while I was watching it. I find it so hard now to watch Jesse Plemons in anything without thinking of Philip Seymour Hoffman because so like appearance wise they look like father and son they do it's scary and I mean in terms of like father and son pairing the fact that they ended up playing father and son in the master directed by Paul Thomas Anderson it's just like I'm really glad that happened and their role choices as well it does feel like so similar and Jesse's like the natural it's like inherited all of those roles that Philip Seymour Hoffman would have done Mm -hmm. and it's like it's not that it's lazy to say that but it's just really hard for me now to sort of watch Jesse Plemons in things and kind of not automatically think of the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman was often appearing in films yeah, yeah. so for the two of them to be in quite significant Charlie Kaufman films again it just feels like this weird kind of Kaufman-esque I suppose uh, parallel it works doesn't it I'm just really interested to see how everyone else finds it so if, if you do watch it then definitely give us a shout on um, social media because I'm just very intrigued
A quick acknowledgement of Tenet, the Christopher Nolan film, um, which we won't be reviewing on the podcast. I did go and see it. It was my first and only cinema trip early one morning in the middle of the week. There were a whole five people in the cinema, including myself and Wes. Yeah, went early. It was a joyful experience, actually. It was lovely. It was completely empty. Best kind of cinema experience. No one there. No one even near me. Had a nice pastry and a coffee. Great. Brilliant. Lovely experience. Film, not so good. Not for me. I think I'd I'd said to you that there was a point about two, th- more than two, th- probably three quarters of the way through where I was getting earache in my ears. So I probably spent about 60 seconds thinking about my earache going, why is that happening? What do I need to take painkillers? And when I tuned back in, I truly had no idea what was going on and I never <laughs> caught up again. And I just had no idea what was happening. Truly baffling to me. For me, it just absolutely didn't work, but we're not going to talk about it a lot. I wouldn't even particularly recommend it unless, you know, you want to go to make sure you're supporting cinemas. Great. Apart from that, it's it's a bit of a letdown, to be honest. Some very handsome people. Yeah, you'd said the casting in terms of hotness was, was obviously appropriate. It's really interesting because it was something that we'd been really looking forward to at the start of the year when we did our what we're looking forward to this year. You know, I have a very complex relationship with Christopher Nolan films, so was intrigued. The casting is, of course, brilliant. You put Robert Pattinson and and John David Washington in a film and I will be there within reason. The only problem is that they are both fantastic actors, but it's hard to come across as a fantastic actor in a film where you're you're talking sort of big monologues about time travel and things shifting and it's just it's so dense but in quite a baffling way that you don't really get that sense of character because it just you're kind of going what are you talking about it doesn't i think there are a few baffling things about this film um obviously it looks pretty great but I don't know, that was kind of lost on me because I just, I was finding it quite difficult to follow, but was also a little bit bored so that I also couldn't quite be bothered to follow it at the same time. Maybe we'll consider it when it comes up on DVD or I suppose if I had gone to see it, then we might have dissected it a little bit more. But similarly, I imagine that I probably would have been exactly as baffled as you and probably wouldn't have had the energy to dissect it. So in case you're wondering why we haven't done a full-blown Tenet episode, it's because... We can't be bothered. (laughs) We can't be bothered. Television, onto television, um, and something that I've been really looking forward to talking about, Lovecraft Country. Uh, It's an American horror TV drama series developed by Misha Green, and it's based on the 2016 novel of the same name by Matt Ruff. It's This is obviously the first season. It's executive produced by Misha Green along with J.J. Abrams, Jordan Peele, Bill Carrero, Yander Mange, Daniel Sackheim and David Noller. It premiered on the 16th of August on HBO and it followed quickly for us on Sky Atlantic here in the UK. And episodes are being released weekly, which is a nice, a nice change for us rather than having a whole season dropped at once. So it stars Jenny Smollett as Letitia Lewis and Jonathan Majors as Atticus Freeman. So two exceptionally beautiful people alongside Courtney B. Vance, Michael K. Williams and others. A quick plot synopsis. So this show follows Atticus Freeman or Tick as he meets up with his friend Letitia, also known as Letty, and his uncle George. And they embark on a road trip together across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father. This is Tick's missing father. 
This begins a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from a Lovecraft paperback. So we've only had four episodes so far. So this chat is, uh, I guess, our initial thoughts without having seen all of season one yet. Obviously, from the synopsis is going to be very on brand for me and something that I was instantly like, yes, want to get on board with. You've been following it as well. What are your thoughts so far? Okay, so this wouldn't necessarily have been something that I was particularly looking forward to or interested in, not because of anyone that was involved or anything like that, but more just because it's so kind of... It's very genre. It's very genre. It's very different to anything that I would ordinarily kind of seek out. But I am a big fan of Jonathan Majors. Mm -hmm. He is phenomenal in The Five Bloods, which again is that Spike Lee film I was referring to earlier. I also loved him in a film that came out last year or 2018, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. He's absolutely phenomenal in that. And I remember that was the first time I'd seen him in anything. And I remember being really blown away by his performance in that. So thereafter, I was like, oh, he's so someone that we like totally have to watch Mm -hmm. so when I saw that he was involved in it and I'd seen some really positive reviews of it from kind of various critics and you'd mentioned it to me as well I was perhaps a little bit more intrigued than I would have been the cast is really strong and it's just a lot of people whose work I really really enjoy in the same way that like last year I wasn't necessarily initially thinking that I was going to be sold on Watchmen for example but I gave it a go I sort of took the same approach in that I was like okay well I'll give it like an episode or two just to see Mm -hmm. and then if I completely drop off then no big deal I was really looking forward like you say to have something that was weekly again I'd got into Mm -hmm. the real routine of kind of having things where I already had loads of episodes banked so I could kind of work through them but actually having that kind of appointment television oh so good and again that was something I really liked about having the Watchmen last year was having an episode to kind of consume and I've really enjoyed it so far in a way that's surprised me quite a lot I think perhaps for me it's because it's set in this particular era of american history it's interesting isn't it it's i mean horror does deal with these sorts of things quite regularly but it is a show that is very much it's a supernatural slash fantasy show but it's set in a very real well a very (laughs) fictionalized real town and area in new england and there's lots of historical kind of touch points like actual plot points and things that are happening and sort of replicas of famous photographs and there's kind of this i guess historical element it's like historical fiction isn't it it's it's something that's grounded very much in a historical moment with the kind of surrounding supernatural backdrop yeah definitely and i think that that was something that actually i think those things in particular balanced out is why i enjoy it so much because i think if it had perhaps been too supernaturally like if that had been the main focal point I think I would have been less engaged but because it seems Mm -hmm. to be kind of balancing this sort of very real life Jim Crow era the danger of what it's like to be black in places in the United States at that time but also you know then you've got the supernatural elements as well I think those two things kind of sucked me in quite a lot I think it's that kind of like real life things like so for example in the first episode they talk about sundown towns the first 
first episode, the pilot was like phenomenal, really. Wasn't so it? powerful. Yeah. And I don't want to keep making comparisons to Watchmen because it's so extremely lazy. I think it's a genre thing, though. It's it's the genre thing and it's the weaving of like real life history. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I'm just really enjoying is that balancing of kind of picking out what's real, what isn't, and just the way that it weaves that kind of supernatural mm-hmm. horror and real life horror. Like those are the two kind of things that it's playing around with. And I really like it. Yeah. I mean, as you say, like as someone who doesn't know much about American history beyond the basics, shock horror, and also benefits from, you know, all kinds, all types of white privilege is really important for me to be able to read the discussions around these episodes and learn about all of these important moments of history and, you know, people throughout history after watching these episodes, the sundown towns, which are something that I personally had basically no idea about this idea of white people designating whole areas as sundown towns, as places that black people had to leave by sunset or they would face violence is not something that I really know about. Like many of the famous kind of replicas of famous photographs by Margaret Bork, White and Gordon Parks, you know, these are things that I haven't come across before. Obviously, I've heard of a green book before because of a very famous film that didn't go down well a few years ago, but there's a fictionalised green book in there. All of these things that I'm learning about as I'm watching this and as you say it's it's hugely frightening particularly that first episode not because of these fantastical monsters who kind of do take a back seat for me in a way in this show but because of the human monsters and this kind of all encompassing all invading racism that these characters have to face every day of their lives completely it's like the real horror is you know, the rest of humanity as society is. And it truly, it truly says something when the supernatural monsters arrive in that first episode. And I actually feel quite relieved because it means that I get a break from the really shitty white people. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And from a sort of genre and a, a literature perspective, it's very starkly spells out Lovecraft's racism. And that's, I mean, we've talked a little bit before. I quite enjoy a lot of quote-unquote Lovecraftian horror, but I personally haven't really read Lovecraft. I think because Lovecraft sort of is horror, but also very much sci-fi, and I'm I'm slightly less interested in sci-fi. So to be honest, I haven't read a lot of Lovecraft. But again, I didn't really know a lot about the really overt racism from Lovecraft and the fact that he supported white lynch mobs and he admired Hitler It's just absolutely shocking. It's something I find really interesting that people gloss over quite a lot Mm -hmm. um, in a way that makes me grossly uncomfortable. I actually think that it's interesting when you do a bit of digging, and it doesn't take very much digging at all, it's literally on Wikipedia, you see how overt he was in his assertions that, like, white people were better than black people and Jewish people. Like, he's, like, completely not subtle about it at all. No, it was a lifelong thing with him. And, yet again, as someone who really loves horror and horror literature and horror filmmaking. I have not seen this come up a lot. This isn't something people talk about a lot, to be honest, despite it being on the surface. And in that first episode, there's a use of a Lovecraft poem that I googled straight away afterwards because I almost couldn't believe that that was a real 
poem just overt it's just so disgusting and, it, and it's out there it's out there for everyone to see Wes and I took a really interesting quiz the other day online which was called Hitler or Lovecraft where it gave you quotations and you had to guess whether it was said by Hitler or Lovecraft we got it wrong quite a lot <laughs> yeah truly that kind of whole area of Lovecraft and well his the content of his writing and also his viewpoints throughout his life is just Wow, it's, I don't even know what to say about it, really. Quickly moving on, the characters in this, I mean, as you say, Letty, Tick, and Uncle George in particular as a unit, they're just amazing from the get-go. The performances in this are really what was anchoring it for me at this point. I did think it was quite interesting that I was thinking to myself, like, if it was other people in the casting, like, people I wasn't as invested in, would I... Would you stick around so much? And no. I definitely don't think I would, because so much of what I get out of every single episode is watching Jonathan Majors as Tick, is watching uh, Joni Smollett as Letty, because I think the two of them in particular, they just work so well together. They've got an amazing chemistry, don't they? She Letty particularly is just an outstanding character so three-dimensional from the very beginning from that first episode and a lot of this show is about family and lineage and community so it's I don't it's just a really the connections and the relationships that they have are just so important to this show for me it's exactly the same like I'm coming back for these characters a lot of the time HBO created a podcast to go along with this show called Lovecraft Country Radio and it's with Ashley C. Ford and Shannon Houston and I think Shannon Houston is one of the writers on Lovecraft Country and they talk a lot well they discuss each episode of the show through the lens of horror and black culture and again I think it's it's so important and rewarding to experience this show through the eyes of a black audience because there are so many moments that I might overlook that are so meaningful. You know, the way that black history is reflected, it aligns with many of the ways that people have grown up. And it, yeah, it just makes you so much more aware of the fact that you're viewing things through a very white Western lens. And this idea of sort of the way that white people can wield power through storytelling and like controlling narratives. I don't know, it's just so, it's definitely so rewarding to listen to that alongside watching the show. That's really interesting. And you've watched the first four episodes as well. Are there, I mean, the pilot's obviously a standout. Were there any others that you liked or didn't like as much? So the the pilot just completely blew my mind, I think, mostly because I had no expectation of what was going to be involved in it. Mm -hmm. Like I had a brief synopsis of what the show was about, but I hadn't Mm. really interrogated it any further than that. So the pilot in particular really blew my mind and the, I guess, The Haunted House. So episode three. Holy Ghost, yeah. Yeah, Letty buys this dilapidated house and does it up and then rents out lots of rooms to other black people. And it's in, it's a predominantly white neighbourhood, isn't it? So it's this idea of that she's kind of been given this inheritance and she moves into this house in a place where, you know, she knows that she's not welcome, but she really wants to just live there and just set up roots and start a home. Yeah. You know, why shouldn't she settle down, have this amazing house? And then things just get progressively weirder and slightly more fraught going forward and that like I really liked that and it's funny to think about what we've been saying throughout this episode you know this idea of a house being as much of a character I love that so much yeah it reminded me of like so many other 
episodes of television or films but I just really like that it was that kind of claustrophobic being contained in a house where things are going wrong you know is it the Mm -hmm. house that's the problem is it the people that are in the house that's the problem Mm -hmm. and again I think that is a perfect encapsulation of the way that it does marry you know this sort of strange supernatural stuff Mm -hmm. but then also the horror of the outside world as well because in that particular episode you've got people within the neighborhood that are you know making the people in the houses life unbearable there's at one point there's a flaming cross is placed on the front garden by people that don't want black people living in their neighborhood so it's that again it's that perfect marriage between the horror of the people in society in a community Mm. versus the underlying supernatural weirdness and i think those two episodes for me have been the strongest I'm absolutely in agreement, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I didn't like episode two and episode four as much. Both, like, equally a fun time, but those, the pilot and and the house episode really stood out for me. Yeah, I think episode two, Whitey's on the Moon, was quite chaotic, especially after the first episode. It, It just didn't match the pacing of the first episode, and I think quite a few people would reacted and tweeted saying that it almost felt like a finale. Like, there was so much going on. And we were only on episode two and you got all this mythology at once. It was kind of, I felt slightly bombarded, like, whoa, there's a lot to deal with in this episode. All of the episodes are really jam-packed. Very busy. Wasn't quite sure about the pacing of that one. And then, yeah, the fourth episode, which we watched this week, A History of Violence, is very sort of Indiana Jones themed. Good episode, but I would say, as you say, like the first and the third are the best so far. I mean, I have really enjoyed this so far. Um, I think that's pretty clear and I'm definitely on board with watching the rest. I think when I was talking about sort of the, the reactions around the show, it's worth raising that there have been a few concerns too. So something which I absolutely did not twig at all in episode three is that, which is the Haunted House episode, which I thought was really strong, actually. They've changed the name of one of the key characters to a kind of, I guess, a recognisably Jewish name. It's the it's the character of the ghost, so the person who used to own the house. I don't want to give ah. too much away. But the, the ghost of the person who used to own the house, who did some horrible things in the house, the name has been changed to something that is quite kind of recognisably Jewish and has been read by some Jewish viewers as quite an anti-Semitic stereotype. So that has made people, I guess, a bit uneasy. And then episode four, and this is the main thing for me, I guess, is that we have this character of Yahima, who's this two-spirit indigenous person. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to talk about this. Yahima is widely regarded as uh, an intersex or a trans-adjacent person. And they're an indigenous person. That So they are someone who has been imprisoned and silenced and controlled and abused by white colonisers. And without giving too much away, they are treated and silenced just as violently in this episode by a black person. There's a really interesting article which we'll link to by Kenitra D. Brooks for The Root, who is kind of going episode by episode through this show. And they talk about how horror is obviously designed to explore uncomfortable truths, including the way that Western society kind of pushes the oppressed to to become the oppressor. So to have a black person inflict violence on um, another person who has been persecuted in the past. 
and I think that's obviously completely fine. But there are a few. I don't know. I felt a bit weird. There's a really lingering shot on Yahima's body when we first meet them, which yeah. kind of stuck out to me from the get go as a bit unnecessary. Yeah, it's the th- one thing. There's lots going on in the most recent episode, and it was the mm. one thing where I was like, oh, this is a bit like because it's interesting that it addresses this the concept of like the two spirit and their place in you know history and and kind of mythology and folklore. And I think it's it was really interesting they'd sort of chosen to make that particular character as a two-spirit person i think that's quite exciting really isn't it as an idea within a tv show yeah because i felt so like oh that's really cool like a very interesting Mm. choice there and then there were other elements about that entire scene the things that you just pointed out that i was just a bit like oh actually this just feels a bit like it, it sat strangely with me as well yeah and there's a sort of particularly violent end scene which yeah. also felt quite unnecessary and felt again like a conversation that should be had and a truth was being pointed out but the treatment of that character then after being introduced was actually kind of it was a bit grim so that's I think it was disappointing for me yeah and I was sort of I was vaguely aware of it watching it and thinking like I don't know it's like that was almost good but feels a little bit weird and then doing some reading around it was kind of like actually this thing that I've almost got a grasp on in my brain and was thinking something isn't quite right here. Like there are a lot of people who have written some articles and have um, just spoken about this way more, way more fluently than I have. Um, And it makes for some really interesting reading actually. And these are people who actually aren't saying that that they're really enjoying this show and they think it's so important especially for black audiences but there is just a concern that it may not treat other persecuted communities with the same level of respect and I think it's hard to wholly judge this season yet because we're only four episodes in but I guess it's just worth highlighting that there's like this lingering slight unease from some people that they I think people just have such high hopes for this show and so much of it is so strong they just don't want to be let down yeah it's interesting to kind of make judgment calls after only four episodes Mm -hmm. Um, I completely think those are like perfectly valid criticisms and I think it's just part of this wider ongoing discussion about how you can like completely love something or be enjoying something but you can also be critical of it and actually interrogate elements of it that perhaps don't work as well Mm -hmm. or aren't as appropriate it's not about being hypocritical in that sense it's more just saying that like oh this is really good but this element of it isn't as good but it's those discussions that I think are way more beneficial than just turning a blind eye to the negative aspect yeah exactly and you know these are things that I've only slightly grasped as part of my own viewing like quite a basic viewing so reading and listening to these conversations around Lovecraft Country have actually been well a they're just as important as the show itself I think and b they're just I just feel like they're they're really fascinating there's some really good writing and some really good podcasts out there about this show and I think everyone's fully on board with watching the whole thing I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out going forward we've got six Mm -hmm. other episodes so yeah I've got high expectations and I'm really intrigued to see how it plays out so after what we've been enjoying on to our main topic um this is also something that i've been enjoying personally um, and i'm so glad that we get to talk about this so this particular section is titled actors whose work you will watch all or any of regardless of quality now the context for this being our topic of conversation is essentially because i've watched too many shia labeouf films in the last month let's unpack this i feel like your most of your existence outside of eating sleeping and working has been shia labeouf is that yeah correct yeah so in the last i'm just trying to work out in the last month i've watched 10 shia labeouf films 
And the thing that dawned on me whilst watching one particular film, which we will be discussing, was that like there are some actors in this world who I have extreme like an ability to just watch anything they're in, mm-hmm. even if it's absolutely shit. Of course. Just because you know, like, why not? Why the would life be? of being a fan, eh? Absolutely. And to that end, I did a tweet upon Twitter.com that was basically like, whose work will you watch regardless of quality? Like, which actors are the, uh, who do you always show up for? And it was basically inspired by the fact that I decided to watch the Charlebuff film, The Tax Collector, which <laughs> recently made its way online on the 7th of August. Now... The thing about The Tax Collector is it's not a good film at all. The positive thing I can say about it is that it's 90 minutes long. It is a nice, neat hour and a half. Can we also just say you are like top tier Shia LaBeouf fan? Yeah, sorry. I would say I'm very keen on Shia LaBeouf and I will gladly watch a Shia film. Gladly. I think he's great. But I am not anywhere near the league that you are in. So for me to also agree to watch The Tax Collector on a Sunday afternoon, mostly for your benefit, shows how much I love you. It's your extreme dedication to me and my my loves. Let's put it this way. Even Wesley didn't want to watch this film. I don't blame him. It's not. And Wesley will watch any old shit. Prides himself on it. <laughs> it's a badge of honour. It's not a good film. But it just did make me realise that like there are some actors in the world who I will just tolerate anything regardless. On the Shia LaBeouf front, I know that like he is a fairly contentious person for many people. Of course. That's fine. Completely take that on board. And I... I think that I just find him so endlessly fascinating because, mm-hmm. and we will come on to this probably more when we talk about another film, Honey Boy, because I feel like he's had such a complex life and career mm-hmm. that there's just mm-hmm. so many things that like I just find fascinating about him. But if we just briefly talk about The Tax Collector, because I just feel like it really does typify like when you will sometimes just be like, oh, so-and-so's in that, I'll watch that. And then you realise like five minutes in that it's absolute garbage, but like you've committed to it. And I think we've talked about before about this idea of like when you like someone's work, when you will just like, oh, I'll just work my way through their filmography. Like I had a really bad habit of doing this when I was a teenager where I would like watch a film with a person in and then I would be like, yeah, you get obsessed with them and you have to watch everything. Apparently I've not grown out of it. But so The Tax Collector, like I said, was released online on the 7th of August. It's written and directed and produced by David Ayer, who has directed a few films that I have enjoyed, mostly End of Watch and Fury, and then many other films that I have not enjoyed, including Suicide Squad. And it stars Bobby Soto, Shia LaBeouf, George Lopez and Cynthia Carmona. Um, The plot, if there is one, revolves around two enforcers, or rather tax collectors, working for an imprisoned LA crime lord called The Wizard. David, who's played by Bobby Soto, and Creeper, who's played by Shia LaBeouf, collect his cut from the profits of local gangs in Los Angeles, but soon find themselves trying to protect themselves from an old rival. Across the board, it's been widely critically panned. The rating currently on Rotten Tomatoes is 18%. Oof. Shia LaBeouf and David Ayer have worked together previously, so on Fury, which came out in 2014. The main thing about this film, and we have talked about this in episode 30, so if you want to go back and have a listen, 
the film itself was filmed between July and August in 2018. And Shia had his entire torso tattooed for this. In episode 30, we talked about the fact there'd been some paparazzi pictures of him and his chest was visible and there's just like this massive tattoo and it says creeper across his stomach. And we debated whether it was real or not, whether it was for this film. Um, But it has been now confirmed that he literally endured hours of tattoo time. As someone who has been tattooed, I don't know why you would do that for a film. I'm going to assume all celebrities get it numbed, but there you go. Yeah, but why would you bother? Like, why would you endure an entire front piece tattoo for a film? I'm going to honestly say that the only note I wrote for this film is why did Shia choose this movie to invest in a tattoo? Especially when you don't see it. You don't see it. Why? So, this film is not good. I don't understand why it exists. There are so many problems with it. Narratively, it makes no sense. There is no plot. I feel like so much of it's been taken out. Like, I feel like so much of it's been cut. Do you think there was a bunch of stuff that they had to take out? 100%. I reckon it was probably... I reckon there will be a a director's cut at some point. No, there won't. Do you think so? No, I think there will be because I reckon that David Ayer probably had to take out all of, like, the super, super violent stuff. Imagine if you added it back in and then suddenly it was, like, the best film you've ever seen in your life. I just don't think that would be the case, though. It's probably not going to be the case. My favourite thing in the build-up to this, though, is that some pictures did appear online of the aforementioned tattoo they seem to be which isn't even very nice uh it's fine isn't it i think for for the style it's executed perfectly fine do you think after some digging around i discovered that it's based on a picture of his parents so there we go that's quite sentimental but yeah but it says creeper across it yeah i mean that's not cool is it but it's the fact that you don't even see it i missed it It, it's honestly on second on screen for for like seconds via facetime and covered in blood this film is awful. Like, it was bad. It's bad, isn't it? And this is what I mean about the fact that, like, I mean, I would not have watched this if he wasn't in it. No. And I think it's so interesting that this comes after Shia. I mean, as you say, Shia's had a, he's had a bumpy ride and um, his public persona was pretty interesting for quite a while. And um, I think a lot of the discussion around him was basically based on his behaviour publicly, um, which was bizarre. But then he sort of hit the ground running and was involved in quite a few either kind of acclaimed films or very positively reviewed films or a few art house films, kind of, I don't know, he was building up a good reputation, I felt, as a very interesting actor with some very varied roles in somewhat good films, good films, better than average films. Uh, And then this comes along and you just wonder why this happens in the middle of quite a good run. I think it's one of those things where you know when actors get particularly attached to like a specific directors. Is David Ayer that nice? I think the thing that I found interesting when researching is that Fury for Shire was like a real turning point in his career I think for Mm -hmm. him and I think he really committed to like the role he did a lot of research he's a very committed young man isn't he he takes his roles very seriously yeah and like he he sliced his own face up for this film he's got a really nice cool scar on his face now for it and I think that like he's obviously got a very good relationship with David Ayer so I assume that it was probably like do you want to be in this film yeah sure I can't imagine why I would have done it like otherwise. what what what's it about well there's a Latino Billie Eilish and you get to have a cauliflower ear so I also think as well that 
at the time you've alluded to the fact that he's obviously had a lot of like legal issues and wranglings and one of the things that came up quite a lot in press for Honey Boy um, which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. in a second is the fact that like literally no one would work with him because he was considered like napalm essentially because he was so potentially unruly that I th- I assume he was probably struggling to get work. And if he's got a good relationship with David Eyre, um, the time frame for this is interesting that in that he films it directly after he's filmed Honey Boy. Yeah, I mean, for Honey Boy to come out last year and this to come out this year, it does, from uh, an outside perspective, seem like quite a pivot. It's funny because it was filmed, like I said, July to August 2018. And then um, Honey Boy was filmed from May to June in 2018 so they they were literally back to back and I feel like it probably was a case of like I need to work who will work with me and maybe work with friends yeah yeah Yeah. work with friends work with good people well now I feel bad for slagging it off don't it's awful I don't feel bad it's not a good film if we pivot to Honey Boy because I feel like it's such it's such an interesting comparison because I mean Rotten Tomatoes means nothing I suppose in the grand scheme of things but the tax collectors have a rating of 18% and have been panned critically across the board. Mm-hmm. But Honey Boy, do you currently have a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 94% and have been nominated for like a number of like end of year awards for performances, for writing and for directing as well. It's mm. just like such an interesting contrast. So, and I think it's why I just find his career so interesting. So if we touch upon Honey Boy as well, so it's the first narrative feature for Israeli director Alma Harel. Um, he's usually known for her documentary music video and commercial work. Um, she did a really good documentary called Bombay Beach and another one called Love True. Um, and she's also directed music videos for Beirut and Sigia Ross. And that's where she first met Shia. She's also involved in like a, a initiative called Free the Bid, which seeks to fight gender bias in advertising. So it asks ad agencies to ensure they hire at least one female director each time they produce content, which mm. I thought was really interesting. Um, so the script for Honey Boy itself, which was a childhood nickname, was written by Shire during a court-ordered stint in rehab after he was arrested in Georgia during the filming of The Peanut Butter Falcon. He was offered jail time or a fine and rehab for alcoholism and anger issues, and he took the latter, so he went to rehab as part of his therapy, which led to an eventual diagnosis of PTSD as a reason for his behavioural problems combined with his addiction and alcoholism. Shire wrote about his life and memories as a form of exposure therapy to confront things head on. And then these passages that he wrote would then go on to become a full script and which ended up as Honey Boy. LaBeouf has mentioned in many interviews that most people at that time had given up on him completely, both professionally and personally, and that Mm. Alma was one of the few who hadn't stopped checking in completely. Accordingly, he'd sent her what he'd been working on via email during his time in rehab, and the two of them had met after he'd seen her documentary Bombay Beach and he'd got in touch with her sending praise and wanting to work together. So they did the Siguros video, but they had yet to find another project until he ended up in rehab. And it's really interesting if you read any interviews with her about the project. Um, She herself has got a background. Her upbringing was slightly fraught in that one of her parents is an alcoholic and I think she sort of saw in Shire a kindred spirit because they had very similar upbringings. So the plot of Honey Boy in 2005 actor Otis Lort who's played by Lucas Hedges is sent to rehab after a drunken post-car crash altercation with police a therapist diagnoses him with PTSD which he denies but he's encouraged to look back at his past as part of exposure therapy you're noticing the parallels with real life here in 1995 we then see a young Otis who's played by Noah Dupe who's working on a TV show which is a sort of stand-in for Even Stevens which is the Mm -hmm. show that Shia found his fame on Um, and he's living with his father James who's played by Shia LaBeouf in a motel 
Hotel in California. The film moves between these two time periods as we learn more about Otis's fraught upbringing and his relationship with his father and how both affected the man he's become. It was filmed entirely in 19 days in 2018, as I said, I think within a few weeks after he was released from rehab, which I just found so endlessly mm. interesting. And Lucas Hedges and Nojeep and Shire are joined by Byron Bowers, who plays Otis's rehab roommate, Percy, Laura Sangiancomo and Martin Starr, who play counsellors at the facility, and back in 1995, FK Twigs, who plays another resident at the motel. So... This was something that I'd been really looking forward to seeing. It showed at London Film Festival last year and we didn't get tickets for it, so therefore didn't see it. And its UK release, for us at least, where we live, was extremely limited. So yeah. we'd completely missed out. I think there was one screening on a Sunday and neither of us could make it. Yeah, I remember that. A real bummer. So I'd been really looking forward to it. Given the cast, I'm a big Lucas Hedges fan. We've discussed Lucas a few times. We have discussed Lucas and I have to say when I watched it finally, it really blew me away. I found it quite overwhelming to watch really for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we can discuss briefly. You watched it as well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's got a really interesting narrative structure. There's lots in it about obviously childhood trauma, inherited trauma, addiction masculinity and in particular i suppose the notion of like toxic masculinity and what it does to your sense of self especially carried into adulthood there's lots of ideas in it as well about this kind of idea of showing emotion or the impact of not showing emotion emotional manipulation from a parent it's obviously extremely meta because you've got shire playing his own dad in the film you've got lucas hedges playing grown-up shire in rehab you've got noah duke playing even Stevens era Shire. And I think I really enjoyed the narrative structure of it. I really enjoyed those kind of like meta aspects. I really enjoyed even Stevens as a kid, which is probably mm -hmm. why I like Shire so much. And it was really interesting for me, the absolute nerd that I am, knowing a lot of the references to even Stevens episodes. There is a really funny video actually I'll link to on the blog where it, uh, someone who wasn't me, honestly, <laughs> went through and matched up loads of the references in the film with even Stevens episodes. Oh, interesting. And Alma Harrell and Noah Dupe together when they were prepping for the film watched hours and hours of even Stevens, which I think is very, very cute. Mm. But I just was really overwhelmed by this film. I, I really, really liked it. And I think it's so interesting to think about the prospect of having to go to therapy, having to write all this stuff in therapy about your upbringing, coming to terms with a the diagnosis, then having to interrogate your essentially your entire childhood and then deciding to turn it into a film and having to relive all of that. That just seems really overwhelming. But then the idea of going from this into Tax Collector just honestly blows my mind. Like, it was so funny watching the two of them. I watched... Um, I think I watched Tax Collector first. Yeah. And then I watched Honey Boy finally a few days later. That's basically what I did as well, yeah. Such whiplash. So what did you think of Honey Boy when you got around to watching it? So I watched it a couple of days ago, pretty much, I don't know whether it was the day after or two days after Ca Tax Collector. So um, yeah, very, very, very interesting contrast. And as someone who hasn't read a lot about Shire's background, um, I knew loosely what this film was about and I knew it was loosely based on him to an extent but um, it was far more autobiographical than I anticipated and it was a real eye-opener for me in terms of Shire's career and his upbringing and some of his kind of linking that as you say to some of his public behavior in recent years so I knew he was a child star obviously knew even Stevens but I, I, I really didn't know about the family dynamics and you know the, the parallels there that Shire says that his parents were kind of hippies and he accompanied his father to AA meetings as a kid and was 
mentally and verbally abused by his dad and his his dad went to you know rehab for heroin addiction and his mum was struggling to sort of handle all of that and keep the family together so and this idea as well that LaBeouf said that he initially became an actor because his family was broke, not because he wanted to pursue an acting career, which we yeah. kind of, we see in the film as well with Otis, which is just, I don't know, it's just horrific to see. And a thing that I find interesting is the fact that you you see a lot of Noah Jupe, who is great as Otis, and obviously Lucas Hedges is fantastic as well in a, in a role that I, I haven't really seen him in as much. He's sort of someone who's, I guess, more outwardly, aggressive is not something that I've seen Lucas Hedges do but it's interesting that this film is actually focused on James um, the father and to see Shire embody his own father in this role is just I don't know it's so fascinating and that process of rehabilitation that you mentioned like I wonder how much this became part of his rehabilitation like stepping into the shoes of his father and trying to understand the motivations and the behaviour of his father as well as kind of, I don't know, coming to terms with it, I guess. Yeah, completely. And it's a very, it's a very, very unconventional family relationship in this film. You know, you've got a father who's basically reliant on the son for money and for security and everything. And James is, as you say, like uh, in terms of sort of ideas of masculinity, he's pretty much a loser in all areas. So he he lacks, he kind of projects himself as someone who's very funny and very charismatic, but he's actually, he lacks power, he lacks money, he pretty much lacks everything. He's kind of a loser in all areas. And I don't know, I, I find it interesting to think about, should I write the screenplay for this, right? So yeah. I wonder, just thinking about that process of going through rehab and filming this film, how much after writing the screenplay, how much other control he had or direction he had outside of the screenplay. And like, I imagine it's probably a very good idea that he had an external director, someone else who wasn't himself directing this film. But yeah, I wonder how much what was going on in the background in terms of, you know, the way the direction that the film was taken and what he had to do with, you know, certain aspects, decision making and things like that. I don't know. I just found myself thinking about that quite a lot afterwards. To that end, it's really interesting because there's this really great four-part podcast okay. that's still available that was recorded around the time of various film festivals last year. Mm. And it's essentially the main cast talking about elements of the film, the construction, mm. the writing process, the filming of it. And the thing that, I mean, it's like, I'm not just saying it because I am a fan of Shire and I'm a fan of Lucas and I'm a fan of Almas, but it's like one of the most interesting things I've listened to in terms of filmmakers and actors talking about the process because yeah. they are far more honest in that podcast than I think they would ever be in an interview with a magazine or anything like that. They're really about. honest about elements of the filmmaking, the things they found particularly tough, the process mm. of it. The thing that came up in that with regards to control and the relationship between Shire and Alma is that she talks about the fact that it was obviously quite a hard process for him and he attests to it. And she talks about how when Lucas did all of his scenes, mm. majority of the therapy scenes were all filmed in one day. 
Uh-huh. Wow. Um, and Shire wasn't on set for any of it because mm-hmm. he didn't want to be, because he knew he'd find it too tough. And then other elements of it he just wouldn't be around for because he mm. just didn't want to intervene. Like he just didn't feel that it was, you know, it, it already felt like a bit of a vanity project anyway. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to be there having being, you know, getting too involved. And I just find their dynamics so interesting because they're obviously friends and she had his best interests at heart, but she's obviously got artistic vision and what she wants to do with this film which is considering it's her first narrative feature as well yeah like that's a big responsibility and you can't you don't want to mess it up when you're putting someone's life on screen and there's other little things as well so they talk about the fact that Lucas would go to Shire's house and like go through his wardrobe and stuff Mm -hmm. and like take his clothes I mean for a real nerd like me there were things that Lucas was wearing in the film that I was like, oh yeah, that's definitely this t-shirt or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and there's just aspects of his mannerisms. So they were very well rehearsed with like nailing mm-hmm. everything that he would do. So there was a level of involvement there and Noah Dupe was the same, I think. Shire talks about the fact that like Noah ended up staying at Shire's house and then Shire got so freaked out by the way that they were rehearsing, trying to <laughs> nail aspects of his personality that he yeah. then moved into a hotel for the duration of the filming because he just wow. absolutely just couldn't handle couldn't it. Be around. It's tough, isn't it? I can understand that it would be rewarding in some way to do to go through the process of this film, and it might help in some ways. But you do also wonder, like, does this not also fuck you up a bit as well? <laughs> it's a lot, and I think one of the things I found interesting in a f- couple of the interviews that I've read and and watched is that he talks about the fact that when he came out of rehab and him and Alma had decided to make this film and they got the financing for it and you know they got the go-ahead he then obviously had to go and ask his dad if he was able to essentially make this film mm-hmm. um, and he talks about the fact and to that point he hadn't spoken to his dad in seven years Wow, for a variety of reasons so the idea of having to go and confront your dad who you've just been through extreme therapy dealing with the outcome of the way that he treated you to then be like oh I want to make this film about my upbringing can you sign off on it must be huge and he's said like multiple times now that like they've got quite a good relationship and that the film has been quite cathartic in that sense but to have to tackle your trauma head on and not only tackle it head on by going to therapy and and dealing with this diagnosis but then deciding to turn it into a film and then essentially having to do like an entire press cycle where you're talking about all of that I suppose it's one of the things I quite like about him as an actor is that he has this extreme level of honesty where he just kind of is quite open with talking about this stuff and I think it's why I found the film quite moving really is that those therapy scenes in particular are just quite overwhelming this idea of having to confront things head on and having to talk about things that make you uncomfortable and interrogate Mm -hmm. elements of your behavior especially when you're like in denial about them and stuff like that there's one quote in particular that like I keep coming back to and I keep thinking about quite a lot is that during one of the therapy sessions Otis says um the only thing my father gave me that was of any value is pain and you want to take that away and it's just Mm. really interesting when you think about like essentially building an entire career around like wanting to please your parents or like Mm -hmm. having to have this job in order to help your parents out Mm -hmm. you know being a child actor must just be an extremely was famously not a great idea is it (laughs) right yeah it doesn't bode well doesn't bode well at all and it's really interesting to sort of see someone like him coming out the other side of it 
I just think there's there's so much to unpack in the film and I definitely like would recommend that podcast because I think it makes like such an interesting companion piece to it in a way that I've never experienced with any other film and it was a really odd I sort of downloaded it on a whim because it had come up a couple of times when I'd been reading interviews with Alma Harrell in particular mm-hmm. um, it would be referenced so I decided to download it and give it a listen and I was like oh this is like very very interesting as a, a kind of nice little one too but it's just very interesting to me as a kind of um, peak piece of his career it's like undoubtedly the best thing that he's done mm-hmm. and to the interesting thing as well is obviously when you think about his arrest that took place came when he was filming peanut butter falcon which mm-hmm. is a really good film that i recommend anyone watches it's just like the most sincere film i've seen in such a long time but it's just so interesting to think that he did that and then went straight into doing tax collector yeah i mean of the two i'd say don't you don't need to bother with tax collector, but as you say, Honey Boy is definitely worth everyone's time. Absolutely. Whether you're a, a Shire fan or not. Um. So I think that's basically why we ended up having that little debate about yeah. like, whose who's work you will watch regardless mm-hmm. of quality, because those are two like varying ends of the spectrum. And that's absolutely. why the, I ended up watching 10 films in the space of a month, some of which I had already seen, a few that I hadn't. High points, low <laughs> points. High point would be I watched Holes. Have you seen Holes? I've seen Holes. Yes, just a delight. Absolutely great. Yeah, great film. Um, and then I also watched Nymphomaniac Part One and Part Two. So there we go. And I've seen the condensed version of Nymphomaniac. I've seen All I Need to See. Great time. The end. Yeah, amongst others. So I watched a whole bunch of those, and it just made me think about the fact that like there are some people whose work I will completely like tolerate regardless of quality oh yeah absolutely and i think that's a prime example of what like what i mean when we say regardless of quality as well it just means like the good stuff you're a completist you're a completist the good stuff and the bad stuff you have to Mm -hmm. sometimes you have to watch trash in order to get like a real gem of course and i don't know what the logic is behind it is it like the joy of seeing someone on screen or the need to complete it i think that's what it is for me you're you strike me as a completist I am not a completist, to be honest. Obviously, there are particular people that I am very attached to and therefore will watch or consume anything to do with them. And I definitely get stuck. As you say, like, I will go through phases of being quote-unquote quite obsessed with something or someone um, and feel the need to kind of consume pretty much everything around them for my own satisfaction. But um, I'm less of a completist, so I can't... I don't even really know what drives me other than just the enjoyment of seeing those people on screen. I think sometimes it's like when you're in a thing where you just want to watch someone's films and you're just like, oh, I'm going to have to just like bust this out. I remember quite vividly when I was a teenager as a result of, and for me especially, it's always like you'll see one film that you really, really enjoy Mm-hmm. And then that's it. You then have to just be like, oh, I'm really through, intrigued. Right? I'm going to go mm-hmm. through. It happened for me when I was a teenager when Walk the Line came out. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, like watch lots and lots of Joaquin Phoenix. And bearing in mind that was like 2005, I think. Yeah. So Joaquin Phoenix's career to that point had been like a real mishmash of stuff. The thing that yeah. stands out most to me is like being i would have been what 15 16 and watching Mm -hmm. eight millimeter which is this film with nicholas cage yeah which is like about snuff films it's fucking harrowing it really is like it's is it good who knows but i remember just watching it being like oh cool yeah i really like cinema so it's fine yeah (laughs) 
I watched this because of Joaquin Phoenix. Um, so I can't really tell if it's intrinsically linked to like whether you fancy them or whether you just like really respect someone's abilities. I mean, it can be a mix of both with me. I think it's a both. And also I find it really interesting when you get someone that has a really bad run. So mm-hmm. it's like your your willingness to turn a blind eye to like the absolute trash. Some people I've been thinking about, I'm not even sure they ever had a good run, to be honest, but I keep willingly watching their stuff and i think actually not to labor the point but if i go back to shire because when i look at his filmography really there's a point in like the uh, mid sort of 210s mm-hmm. where like it were not a good run but my like loyalty you're just like yeah i will watch this film and it's just yeah you know if you get someone that's like on the crest of a good point absolutely still doing rubbish you're just willing to watch things of course so like for you Mm-hmm. Who would you say are those people that you will just watch anything? Like, you're going to, like, absolutely 100% turn up for. Okay, so I'll try and blast through them and won't labour it too much. I think mine are, like, so obvious. Yeah. But I I really anticipate that some of yours will be left field. I mean, I haven't done lots of very obvious... I mean, there are obvious, obvious ones that have we've dedicated a lot of time talking about them um, on the podcast. So I've kind of left them to the side. One that we haven't talked about for a while, which is an obvious one, is Tom Hardy. In oh, that. my God. Yes. Just, again, not really... No, I would argue Tom Hardy has done some good films. And I remember getting really into Tom Hardy, seeing, like, Layer Cake and Rock and Roller, and then being like, yes, going to watch Bronson, love it. Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Lawless, The Drop, had such Mad a Max, good Fury Road, Lawless, Revenant, that's another Shire. Dunca- yeah, Shire, just so good. And then we went and, you know, I had to overlook This Means War. <laughs> then we were on the cusp with Taboo and then he absolutely fucked it with Venom to the point that it just really, really, really hurt. I was um, I was really <sighs> hoping that you were going to bring Tom Hardy up because I feel like for us as a podcast and personally, mm-hmm. Venom was such a turning point. It was a betrayal that I actually haven't quite come to terms with. It absolutely ruined it. I do think that I will continue to watch Tom Hardy in things, though. Like, when the next thing arrives, but it's not going to be Venom 2. I'm not watching Venom 2. Anything except Venom, I will probably watch because I'm just, I don't know, just really invested and... A lot of people have made fun of me for it, but here I am. You just still want doing him to it. do well. You just want him to succeed. Right? Some other ones for me, I was thinking of a really obvious one, which I think would be on most people's lists, is Robert De Niro. Yes. Such a crucial example. You know, taxi driver, for me, Angel Heart, Cape Fear. Oh my God, Goodfellas, King of Comedy, like so many. But also, Meet the Parents, New Year's Eve, Dirty Grandpa. Hide and seek. Like, what's going on here? Hey, he's great in The Intern. That's a great film. Well, real mixed bag, though. Like, you sometimes can't believe Robert De Niro is in some of the films that he's in. It's like, is that Robert De Niro? What? It just... Bobby strikes me as someone that is like, I'll do this one that will get really critically revered. And then I That one will make me some money. Yeah, and then I also need to finance my hotel in new york so i have to do this garbage absolutely absolutely an interesting thing actually is that most of these are men um and that hasn't passed me by um (laughs) oh yes mine are largely men which is interesting um, isn't it 
I mean, we've mentioned Megan Fox a million times. She is someone that I, I mean, she's definitely done more bad than good. Jennifer's body being probably the only good. Um, Transformers, Jonah Hex, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, not so much. But I would probably watch anything that Megan Fox Maybe is in. We could mm. do a Transformers rewatch because that Shall would we? tick boxes for both of it, us. It ticks both boxes for both yeah. of us. One that. I was thinking about earlier and that Wes and I have discussed quite a lot of is Elijah Wood. So, Oh yes. So Elijah Wood, I have come to, I mean, obviously I was quite a big Lord of the Rings fan back in the day, but in recent years, I've become so aware of Elijah Wood and I have so much respect for him as an absolute horror film nerd um, and a weirdo, but who is just also the nicest person ever. And not all of his films have worked, but most are at least quite interesting in premise. So, I feel like he seeks out like interesting stuff. Really interesting. They definitely don't always work. So, I mean, obviously, early days in Flipper, great. Hey, Flipper was one of my favourite films as a kid. Exactly. He was in Eternal Sunshine and he was obviously in Lord of the Rings. He's been in quite a few films recently, like Come to Daddy and I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore with Melanie Linsky that I thought he was great in. He also produces a lot of horror films. So he produced A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Colour Out of Space, and Daniel Isn't Real, and Mandy. Um, so just like got a r- lot of really good stuff under his belt, but was also in The Last Witch Hunter, Happy Feet, which actually is not that Happy bad. Happy Feet is a lovely film, Steph McKenna. Interesting. How dare you? Uh, the Oxford Murders, which got a cool 9% on Rotten Tomatoes with John Hurt. So I would pursue any film that comes out that has Elijah Wood in it. Not always guaranteed they're going to be up there in terms of quality, but they will at least be interesting in some way. Army Hammer, he's one that we've discussed a million times. Why do I keep watching Army Hammer films? Got a nice face, is tall. Just, oh, is he is he a good actor? I don't know. Huh. I don't know. We've discussed this already. Army Hammer's one, definitely. The Fated Twilight Couple, Kristen Stewart, R. Pats. Oh God, R. Pats I will turn up the opening of an envelope for. I watched The Haunted Airman with R. R. Pats in it. <laughs> Why did I do that? But it's because he was in it. Did you watch the 9-11 film? Obviously, remember me. That was an awful film. Isn't Claire from Lost in that? Yeah, Bellamy. Terrible films. <laughs> but also, get the haunted elephants. airman, honestly. Yes, water for elephants? Absolutely not. But also, <laughs> good time. The king, the lighthouse. High life, just... Oh. Same with Kristen Stewart. Like, there's no other reason I'd be interested in seeing Charlie's Angels, is there? <laughs> no, true. But, you know, Snow White and the Huntsman. I watched Snow White and the Huntsman for Kristen Stewart. But she's also been in Adventureland and Personal Shopper and Lizzie and a bunch of indie films that are great. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is a key one, obviously. We watched Extraction together. Didn't need to do that. Men in, we went to the cinema to we see Men, in, Men Black. in Black. in the cinema. Again, I watched Snow White and the Huntsman for him and Case Stew. <laughs> I will oh watch God. absolute garbage if it's got Chris this Hemsworth This is making in me it. feel so much better. And I will love it. Everyone's favourite, Nick Cage, obviously. Poster boy for the weird, wild at heart, Mandy, colour out of space, Con Air, face off, 8mm, Raising Arizona, kick ass, all of these things. National treasure, the Wicker Man, Ghost Rider. The bees! <laughs> the bees! Terrible, terrible, terrible. But you also, you know that it's probably, well, actually, I say you know that it's going to go be bad when you see a Nicolas Cage film. There are plenty of Nicolas Cage films that I've been pleasantly surprised by. So I feel like he keeps you on his toes. No, the other way around. Keeps, 
He keeps you on your toes, not his toes, your toes. A couple more before I stop because you need to do yours. I would watch anything with Alex Skarsgård in, obviously. Big Little Lies was great. Quite liked Hold the Dark. I thought he was good in that. He was in Melancholia. He was in Diary of a Teenage Girl. But weirdly, I've been thinking about those two films a lot recently. What? Melancholia? Yeah, Melancholia and Diary of a Teenage Girl. I was just remembering like how good they are. Right. What about The Legend of Tarzan? Uh, I have not seen that film. Have you not? Well, I can can tell you that I have. And it's not good. (laughs) It's not good. But he's in it. And he's also in Straw Dogs, which is also not good. Oh, did you watch Straw Dogs? Obviously. It's got Alex Skarsgård in it, which is unfortunate. I, I did put Jake Gyllenhaal, but I will leave you to talk about that one. But The Day After Tomorrow and Prince of Persia were not highlights, were they? Hey, Day After Tomorrow is a good film about things we should be concerned about. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Another quick list. I'm going to rattle off the final ones without any. J-Lo. Sure. Obviously. Michael B. Jordan. Yep. Classic. And then I was also thinking some of the older guard, Willem Dafoe and Christopher Walken. Oh, God, I would watch anything with Willem Dafoe in. Right, absolutely anything. The Boondock Saints, you say? Right. Draw the line at speed two. Terrible. Uh, Woody Harrelson. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I will watch anything with Steve Buscemi in. I think when I asked for people's opinions, where's said Steve Buscemi? So much. Um, I did also put Joaquin Phoenix, obviously. Keanu, I think people would... You just watch it, Keanu, in anything, wouldn't you? Even yeah. Constantine. Shire. Shire's in Constantine. Sh- right? Oh, my God. I didn't know that. I'm going to stop there because they, they go on for a while. There are a few others, but you you do yours. Um. So, obviously, Jake Gyllenhaal. I will defend the day after tomorrow, but Prince of Persia is something that I just absolutely cannot get behind it's obviously very interesting in the career trajectory of jake john hall is i thought you were gonna say the film is very interesting i was like no it's not (laughs) why is he in it nice hair but other than that it makes no sense his english accent is stupid it's just not a not a good film interesting in that it it basically changes his entire career going forward because he himself realizes it is not a good film chris evans I've watched yes. some absolute garbage for Chris Evans. Of um, course. Same goes for Sebastian Stan as well. Oh, I was thinking about Sebastian Stan. He's 50-50, isn't he? I am not convinced that Sebastian Stan is actually very good. <laughs> but I will watch anything for him. Obviously. You know, put him in a film, I'm there. It could mm-hmm. be the best film in the world. It could be the worst film in the film. I will endure it. I watched Ricky and the Flash for him. Um, he's in it for about 20 minutes. I had a nice time because it's a good Meryl Streep film. But, there you go. You know, why? Joaquin Phoenix, again, as I'd mentioned, Obviously. Greta Gerwig has got some very interesting points on her career, including Arthur with Russell Brand. Oh, no. Um, oh. Yeah, not good. Adam Driver as well. I mean, Adam Driver's got definitely more hits than misses, but I've definitely watched some, like, bizarre things for him. Uh, Ryan Gosling as well. Ryan Gosling's quite a big one as well. The early stuff is of varying quality. Oscar Isaac as well. Has Oscar Isaac done bad stuff? Uh, Yeah, like, um, have you not seen Sucker Punch? Oh, hey, I might have liked Sucker Punch at the time. You liked Sucker Punch? It's just awful stuff. It's not a good I mean, film. how I was, I was, I wasn't that old. I mean, I was a teenager. I was he a young adult. He sings a nice song I? in it. Like, he sings a nice song in it. 
I mean, yeah. Like Oscar Isaac, before about 2014, 2013, 2014. I mean, I've seen the uh, film he did with Garrett Hedlund called Mojave. Um, Not a good film. Garrett Hedlund's one. I mean, I wouldn't go and... Personally, I wouldn't go and see Garrett Hedlund in I mean, the entire cast of Triple Frontier, you could say, really, if we're being honest. Some of the key ones there, actually, are people like Ben Affleck, who I I personally... anything with Ben Affleck. No, I won't. Ben Affleck, I'm in it. Matt Damon, no. I will watch Matt Damon films. I watched The Martian. That has Sebastian Stan in it for about 20 minutes. The Martian wasn't that bad, was it? No, it's fine. But I mean, it's a lot of Matt Damon, isn't it? Yeah, I even I've seen that. Uh, Jake Johnson as well. Uh, Jake Johnson, mm-hmm. who plays Nick Miller in New Girl. I've watched some very odd films for him. Tag. Have you seen the film Tag, Steph McKenna? Absolutely not. No, I watched that for him and John Hamm. Oh, John Hamm, lovely. Uh, and again, some of the like the old guard that you mentioned. So Robert De Niro, Al Pacino um, on that list as well. Al Pacino, God, one hundred percent. We like tried newer. to watch that Hunters TV show with Al Pacino in it. Not for me. Not for not for you. Uh, Sam Rockwell is another one for me. Oh, good shout. Ethan Hawke, very fine example of this. Yeah. Ethan Hawke has made films that are like the best films in the entire world. May I remind you about First Reformed and the Before Trilogy. But then has also made some like absolutely strange, which I mean, they are good horror films, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. I have a real fondness for The Purge, but he's made some the other things. The First Purge was good. The First Purge is good. Sinister, is that a good film? Um, Predestination, Sinister, I would say is that a good film? Sinister was all right. It's fine, isn't it? Brad Pitt and Michael Shannon are another two. Oh my God, Michael Shannon would absolutely watch Michael Shannon in anything. I'd watch Michael Shannon just like eat a sandwich. I'd, Michael Shannon's filmography is very strange as well in that he's made some really, really good films and then things that are just like absolutely strange. Did you watch his Christmas film? No. Oh, there's a film on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a Christmas film and it's just like the weirdest fucking thing. I don't do Christmas films at all, apart from Nightmare Before Christmas. Apart from Nightmare Before Christmas. I also will watch anything with Adam Sandler in. I'm not apologising for this. Yeah, I knew this was going to come up. I like... Adam Sandler. I'm very excited for his Halloween film, which will be on Netflix soon. Mm. But, you know, we do get Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love as well. So, uh, there we Uncut go. Gems is probably the only Adam Sandler film I like. That is fine. Uh, Matthew McConaughey as well. Oh, I put Matthew McConaughey on my list. Just deeply forgot. satisfying. Tom Hanks as well. I will watch anything with Tom Hanks in. I love Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Do you think... why are, There aren't many women on this list. No, I don't know why. I'm thinking... I mean, I will watch anything with, like, Michelle Williams in it. Mm-hmm. Michelle Williams has had a pretty spotty... She was in Venom, so... Yeah, Amy go. Adams. I was thinking Amy Adams is a pretty, like... Mostly strong, few She's misses. She's a fair bet, isn't she? I will watch any... Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of watching any Denzel Washington film. Yes, yes. Um, I think you can always get enjoyment from any Denzel Washington film, really. Yeah, even if it's like a rubbishy action film you don't really have yes. any investment in, like The Equaliser, it's not necessarily my bag, but like we'll have no, a good time watching it. But it has got Denzel. Um, I just think like this is so interesting that there are so many actors where you just like... Abandon all hope and just Abandon all it. hope, yeah. just get on board with it. There's yeah. a massive, massive, massive list of things that people responded on Twitter and Instagram with, and I will definitely share them on the blog and I would put them on Twitter and Instagram as well because it's such an interesting cross-section of like Hollywood and celebrity. Two Mm -hmm. that I would just like to mention though because Mm -hmm. I think they are like the funniest thing um, (laughs) ever and actually I think it might just be one is 
our friend, our dear friend, Becky, she responded and said that when she asked her her mum this question, her mum said, and I kid you not, Kermit the Frog. Oh, no. I'm not sure about Kermit the Frog's career outside of Muppets films, but I will always watch a Muppet film, so there we go. I'm also, what's Kermit's uh, Rotten Tomatoes page looking like? Do you think IMDb has Kermit the Frog? I think if you searched for um, Kermit the Frog on IMDb, you would like fully find many acting credits, often appearing as himself, I suppose. Well, yes, yes. Funnily enough, yes. Muppets, Muppets, Muppets. Once Upon a Mattress? Don't even know. It's probably a Muppets film. Probably. Seven acting credits, though, and he's also two feet tall. There you go. (laughs) Prolific. And his alternative name is... Kermit. <laughs> Kermit. He goes by one name. So there we go. That's an, a brief overview of what it means to withstand the absolute trash in someone's career. I feel like if you've got strong opinions about people that we've missed off, do definitely get in touch. Um, if you think we've said anyone makes rubbish films, please don't tell us. Oh, no, I'm not interested. Wrong. And also, I encourage everyone to watch Honey Boy, but avoid Tax Collector Like the Plague. Agreed. So, uh, on to Obsession of the Week. You can go first. Okay. I'm trying really hard not to be like a broken record and be like, oh, Timothy Chalamet in June. Or, oh, Bill Skarsgård. Can't believe Bill Skarsgård's not going to be in The Northman, which is upsetting me. Robert Eggers. So, so much. I cannot believe. 2020 has robbed me of so many things, but a screenplay by Robert Eggers and Sean with... Bjork and two scars guards and a million other people I love in it and Bill is now not in it it just he's too busy it's just absolute can't even deal with it. it makes me cry so what I will say is um Wes and I have pretty much binged all of I'll Be Gone in the Dark this week which is the six-part HBO documentary series based on Michelle McNamara's book of the same name and it's just landed in the UK so it was obviously out in the US a bit before we've only just got it and I just think if you're into true crime at all it's definitely definitely worth a watch a really refreshing take on that story which has been the subject of many many podcasts and tv shows over the years and it's very much from the victim's point of view and from Michelle's point of view which was just very I don't want to say rewarding. Rewarding's not the right word, but um, it was definitely the story that I wanted to hear for a change. So I would highly recommend that. Um, what's your obsession of the week? Um, well, it's still Shire. Is it Shire? But then also I've been spending a lot of time in the last few hours thinking about Oscar Isaac. Oh, lovely. And how excited I am for him in June and how that will be a very nice time. And I also watched Widows again last weekend. Brilliant film. And I just think we didn't talk enough about how great that film is and how bloody good Daniel Kaluuya is in it. We did review it, didn't we? We did, yeah, but the world at large so just didn't talk about him enough. Widows went under the radar in a way that is so frustrating because it was such a brilliant film. And as you say, Daniel Kaluuya in that film is amazing obviously we went to see it in the cinema but t hadn't come with us and when we were watching Mm it we were trying to figure out something to watch that we would both get on board with and i was like oh you didn't see this let's watch it and i just think like every single person in that film is just like on another level brilliant brilliant so good but oh daniel kalir in particular so that was Mm -hmm. nice that was nice to remember how flipping good he is in that film how lovely go watch widows everyone please go and watch widows 
So that's us done. You can find us online. We're Twitter at the first, the first pod.podbean.com. You can subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts as well by searching for The Thirst. We're also on Spotify. Our Instagram handle is at the first pod. Our blog is the thethirstpod.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.